everyone to Cantus Firmus Book Club, which is the name that I just came up with just now. Uh, this is our first episode, and I have as my guest uh, my friend Tim the Atheist. And uh, Tim, why don't you give a little bio of yourself? Yeah. Hey. Uh, so I am uh, a computer programmer by trade. I'm. Uh, I have absolutely no online presence, and uh, and so I'm an absolute amateur when it comes to discussing uh, these kind of topics. I I expect you to run circles around me, uh, Cody, just based on <laughs> based on the online discussions you and I have had. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll I'll do my best. I'm not afraid because uh, I, you know, I do think about about a lot of a lot of different topics. Uh, I I try to I try to read a lot. I was raised in the Mormon Church. I am no longer uh, consider myself Mormon. I call myself uh, an ex-Mormon or a post-Mormon. And uh, yeah, I I'm interested in talking to people who are uh, rational, and you seem like one of those people. So let's do it. Well, I have to say, I'm kind of disappointed because I thought you said you were an ex-merman, which was much more interesting than being an ex-Mormon. <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only. I would have such stories to tell. Yeah, actually, to be honest, being an ex-Mormon is, is pretty interesting, too. That That's a completely fascinating uh, religious movement to me. Um, uh, I, I often think that, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, you, you may know, ran for president. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he also declared, many, many people don't know this. While they were in Nauvoo, Illinois, he declared himself um, the king of the world, uh, as well as uh, a lot of other titles like general in charge of all the armies or whatever, and some other titles as well. And he, my understanding is that he strolled around Nauvoo with uh, a sword and scabbard and like these big epaulets on uh, and on his uniform that that he wore. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I say that just maybe if anybody feels like, you know, Donald Trump is, is this kind of completely unique creature in American politics, I imagine that Joseph Smith's uh, campaign for presidency um, was <laughs> was in many ways very similar to it, but I, I'm not sure Could about be. that. I don't, read so much I don't know. But um, cer certainly get the, get the feeling it would have been. So um, the, the book we're, we're going to be discussing is, and I think this is the proper pronunciation, Jonathan Haidt. Um, he's a, a social psychologist, a professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business, um, and he's also a, you know, a, a pretty um, a pretty established writer. Um, the book is called *The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion*, and um, it, I was actually interested to find out. Um, I done an interview with um, uh, my friend David Lapp, who's involved with Better Angels, and uh, I think Jonathan Haidt is also involved in that in that organization, which is it's consistent with the, the kind of topics that he discusses in his books. So, um, so that that was kind of cool. But um, yeah. so uh, maybe I'll give a, a basic outline of the book, um, and then I'd like to ask you at that point why, why you recommended it for discussion. And actually, I'll, I'll say one other thing. Um, I have every confidence this will be a really interesting and, and a challenging discussion because um, when we have talked online, I, I thought you. Um, we're very fair-minded, but also, uh, you know, very thoughtful and, and honest and, and, you know, willing to communicate your perspective. I didn't see you as uh, polemical or defensive, and, and so I think this will be a really good conversation. Uh, I, I agree, and while we're on, you know, that topic, um, I, I actually don't typically engage with uh, people on social media in that way, um, and the, the reason is because I, really there's 
I feel like you kind of need three things to do that, or you have to be assured of three things, and that's sincerity, respectfulness, and rationality. And I think that most most people who sort of go back and forth online lack at least one of those three things. So. <laughs> The, the basic idea behind this book, and I took this first part just from its Amazon description, and, and I'll kind of elaborate a little bit on it. Um, this is the, the, the basic description. As America descends deeper into polarization and paralysis, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt has done the seemingly impossible, challenged conventional thinking about morality, politics, and religion in a way that speaks to everyone on the political spectrum. Drawing on his 25 years of groundbreaking research on moral psychology, he shows how moral judgments arise not from reason, but from gut feelings. He shows why liberals, conservatives, and libertarians have such different intuitions about right and wrong, and he shows why each side is actually right about many of its central concerns. In this subtle yet accessible book, Haidt gives you the key to understanding the miracle of human cooperation, as well as the curse of our eternal divisions and conflicts. If you're ready to trade in anger for understanding, read The Righteous Mind. And what, what I'll kind of elaborate on here is um, Haidt kind of takes a, the first part of the book he actually spends through defending what's called uh, evolutionary biology or uh, sociobiology or evolutionary psychology rather. And um, he's essentially trying to argue uh, that morality has evolutionary foundations. Um, and he argues that how we tend to uh, arrive at our, our moral uh, beliefs is based on certain um, axes or foundations that, um, uh, kind of give shape to those. So the first one he discusses, and it's the one that I think uh, Western liberals tend to sort of sometimes argue is really the only uh, meaningful axis for understanding morality, is uh, that of care and harm. But he also argues that there's a, a loyalty betrayal foundation. Um, oftentimes it is, is why uh, is particularly conservatives tend to focus a lot on patriotism and be very concerned about this idea of... of um, you know, betraying your country or the, that, that, that sort of thing. There's this idea of betrayal there. Right. There's also an authority subversion foundation. Um, and, you know, I, I think you sometimes see that on both sides of the spectrum, as long as they're guys in power. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and there's also finally the sanctity degradation foundation. I thought this was actually the most interesting one for me. And um, he gives an example Um it's sort of his discussion of the fact that we sort of arrive at moral conclusions based on feelings first, and then we rationalize those later. Yeah. And so he gave this example of uh, giving different moral scenarios uh, to people and, and asking them, do they think it was moral, immoral, and why? Uh, and this example, one example he gave was copulating with a dead chicken. And it's certainly not immoral according to the Care and Harm Foundation, which is the one that sometimes he argues liberals are, are more likely to think of as the only real foundation, at least consciously. Um, but yet both liberals and conservatives pretty much universally thought of that as immoral. Uh, and in fact, pretty much everybody would except for maybe ethics professors and serial killers. But, um, right. Yeah. And I, I, I love the phrase that he came up with to sort of try to explain this part of this phenomenon, uh, moral dumbfounding. In other words, you have people, uh, especially especially on the liberal side, who would hear that story and say, oh, that's just wrong. And then you ask them, you ask them, why is it wrong? And they're kind of like, well, but, well, well, I mean, uh, I don't know. You know, it's, they're dumbfounded. Essentially. They're, essentially, I think Kite's thesis is we have a lot of situations where we just feel something is wrong. But we're not necessarily able to describe exactly why it's wrong. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was I thought that was a pretty interesting um, experiment there to just sort of see how they would sort of come back later and try to give explanations. I think there's a similar story uh, about uh, brother and sister deciding to have incest um, and how that was reacted to negatively. And there were always sort of, you know, post hoc justifications. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, his overall thesis there is that we have two different things going on. One is you have this process where you figure out how you feel about uh, something like what your initial moral intuition is. And then there's a second, a different process where you come up with a justification for how you feel. Mm -hmm. Those are, and he's, his argument is that those are two different processes. Well, I, I thought it was interesting too, that it, 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 there's a lot of, this was an interesting book on morality written by an atheist just because I found that there was a lot of common ground with um, how, you know, the Judeo-Christian, uh, the biblical viewpoint, would sort of find an echo here. And I think he very much is in favor of um, kind of letting everybody come to the table. I think there's a lot of sense in which I think liberals will view conservatives or, or sometimes religious minded people as, um, you know, kind of dangerous that maybe they should be excluded from the public square. Um, but I think in his mind, as long as we're actually cooperating and, and trying to understand each other and come to conclusions together, um, you know, that's actually, actually, everybody should be at the table because we're, we're not really, you know, running on all, uh, you know, on all of our wheels or whatever, uh, and all firing on all cylinders. If, if there was only one perspective there, uh, particularly because the liberal perspective is very focused on just one of these moral axes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, uh, that I agree, I agree that he says that, um, I should probably confess that I am a liberal, but I, I do call, I do, um, uh, I think, I, my, I, I try not to be ideolo ideological about anything. So I, 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 my greatest goal in life is not to be an ideologue. I'm much more of a pragmatist, and I'd much rather deal with the facts as they unfold. And I'm a, my fear is that with ideologies, you're not allowed to do that. You, you have to always, if you, if you choose an ideology and say, well, look, I'm a socialist or whatever you are, uh, you're, not, you're not allowing yourself to react to the facts on the ground. So, Yeah, I, I think that makes some sense. At the same time, I think that all of us are ideological. I mean, even if you, you try to have the most sort of bare bones moral perspective you could have, um, and even a liberal perspective of, you know, care harm is, is, as the, the primary moral axis or foundation, there's a certain assumption that's being made there about value and about human value and about, you know, what's important and, and those kinds of things that I think is ideological. No, you're right. You'd have a hard time talking me like, you know, if you when you talk about all of the different axes that... Uh, and he actually ended up, I think by the end of the book, he ended up with about six. But if you, if you talk about all of his different axes that he brought out, if you were going to try to talk me out of, uh, one, t talk me out of them one at a time, the last one that I would, uh, get rid of would be the care harm. So yeah, I guess you could call me a little bit ideological about that. This book, Tim, what, what was it that, that made you interested in it and discussing it in this uh, this kind of format and that, that sort of thing. How, how has it been influential for you? Yeah, so the, the title 
uh, I mean, I, I could, it's hard to imagine how you could live in America in 2017 and not be uh, perplexed at um, the kinds of political polarization that's going on and sort of how everybody's got their theories about how that's, how that's happened and what to do about it. And so the title just says, hey, why, you know, why we all think we're right, both politically and religiously, uh, and and it's uh, that that was an enticing concept to me to sort of dig into that a little bit. Uh, I think it was also so one of my favorite authors. I don't know if you've read anything by Steven Pinker. Um, Familiar enough with him, I, I I can't say I'm I know a lot about him, but I I have read a little, probably yeah. more essays and things like that. But right, yeah. So I. I I'm pretty sure he was among the people who were recommending uh, Jonathan Haidt. So that that went a long way uh, with me. And as a matter of fact, when you first mentioned your this organization that your friend has, Better Angels, the first thing I thought of was Stephen Pinker's book uh, called "The Better The Better Angels of Our Nature: mm-hmm. um, Why Violence Has uh, Declined in um, Since the Dawn of." history I, or I, i'm not sure what the subtitle is but it's about it's a it's a document uh, uh, uh it, it goes over uh documents how violence uh in civilizations has actually declined uh consistently since uh since civilization began mm-hmm. um so it's a very interesting book but anyhow off topic <laughs> possibly what well, was the, the the political stuff that you kind of referred to it's interesting to me i think this book was written in 2011 is that correct i uh, i think it was yeah so it, it's you know when we talk about the political climate i mean i think it's it's been toxic i think for a while but um and i suppose to some extent it always has been i mean you know there, there are people being you know beat to death on the floor of congress you know during the civil war but um you know there is a certain toxicity that I think um, seems like it's been building up. And and this last election, I mean, it was certainly there. And, you know, perhaps the the internet has something to do with that because there's so many different places where we can sort of look to uh, to sort of consolidate our tribe. There there used to be a sense of, um, you know, communal, what it meant to be an American. And and that seems to be gone. I mean, and it's interesting to me, you know, a lot of the Trump supporters complain about the way that the media has treated Trump, but particularly early on, I don't think they had any reason to think of him anything other than a bizarre human interest story. And that's not how a lot of, you know, obviously his supporters saw him, you know, they saw him as a, you know, a, a legitimate political candidate who who could really make a difference. But there was this sort of shared assumption. I don't think it was just because these are the liberal elite and they just like to mock conservatives because, you know, they, they, they didn't treat, you know, uh, you know, some of the other conservative candidates like they treated Trump. Um, but they were, they were assuming a sense of shared value that has really broken down in this country. And so at this point, to be fair and balanced, I think, honestly, you know, for the media to do that, I mean, I think means to not make any value assumptions at all. And I think, you know, while I, I you know, I do want the media to be as, as balanced and fair as possible, I, I think there should be some shared assumptions that we have as a culture. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, it it does make sense, and I think I would uh, submit that one of those shared assumptions of value is towards the truth and facts. That fact that like that facts are actually possible. It's possible for us to agree on facts. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, yeah, that's one of those shared values that you didn't think you'd have to ever explain to someone, you know? Um, but <clears throat> I mean, would you agree? Well, I, I, I would say as a Christian, I think prior to this election, I, I seem to think that, you know, the, the postmodernists were all on the left. Um, and that, you know, there, there was an assumption of, of um, you know, there not being really any sense of objectivity, that all, all facts were subjective. And that was sort of something, not everybody in the left said it, of course, but, but if you were going to hear it from somebody, you'd hear it from the left. And I just, it just so, seems so bizarre to, to hear the, you know, because I'm not a Republican, but, but that's one thing I, I think that a lot of Republicans traditionally have, have, have thought of as, you know, something that yeah, yeah. they were on board for, the idea of objective yeah. truth. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it, it's something that I battle against. I'm not I'm the furthest thing from a postmodernist. Um, so is Steven Pinker and other people that I admire. Um, and, and, and so it's unfortunate if, if, could, if the Academy laid any of the groundwork, which I'd honestly, you know, I, I don't think for a second that Trump or any of his lackeys have ever read anything that would have influenced them. I think they just think they, they say what they think they can get away with. Um, but yeah, that is a, that is a bit of irony. And, um, you know, there might, there might be some liberals out there who are, haven't figured out yet that maybe they're eating a little bit of their own dog food. But. Well, maybe, you know, I, I think what, what, what there's a kind of playing with the truth that happens um, with people in authority. And I think the postmodernists seem to assume that truth claims were only made by oppressors, that people who made truth claims were authoritarian because they were trying to force their view on you and there yeah. really is no right view. But I think there's a sense in which it's kind of the opposite. I mean, people in authority are always trying to play fast and loose with truth. They're not making sincere truth claims. They're trying to dodge the truth as much as possible and reshape it. And uh, so I, I, I think I think truth has, has, has does goes a long way to undermining authoritarians. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a huge, you know, in my, in my view, and I, I'm pretty sure that I, I, I hope I'm right in this, my assumption that neither of us share any love for Donald Trump, but there, well, there's, well, not, um, not, not beyond Christian love. I, I, I wouldn't call myself a Trump supporter. <laughs> well, well uh, lo- love in the sense of we love having him as our president. Um, so um, uh, they're just, there, there seems to be such a, an amazing um, lapse of political norms here. I mean, we're all familiar with political lying, you know. Uh, you twist the truth, you try to, you know, uh, activate your base, you try to spin things. Uh, but there, it's always seems to have been done with reference to, um, I mean, um, uh, telling a, a, a good lie, you, you know, you would, you would try to try to make reference to some ground community understood sense of what actually is true. And you actually try to, uh, adopt or encompass all of the known facts out there. And it just seems as if the Trump and his team are just have just completely abandoned any attempt at all to ground themselves in the facts and they they'll say anything at all. It doesn't even matter what it is. They'll just say it. And, and I guess you're supposed to just swallow it, but I, I can't. So. Well, well I, I will say maybe in, 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 in deference to a lot of the Trump supporters, it seems that a lot of Trump supporters are aware of a lot of his flaws, 
but there's something they see in Trump that they still find to be more attractive than what the left was presenting. Um, and maybe that, I think we can talk about these different axes, but um, yeah, I, I, I do think that, I, I will say just kind of really quickly though, that one, one thing that really stuck out in the book for me is he, when he talks about the hive switch, uh, this idea that we sort of, you know, can become very focused on group thinking, you know, or thinking of mm-hmm. how, how we fit into the, the, the wider group. But yeah. and he, so he, he talks about how, if you, um, if you're wanting to um, have a, a sort of a more healthy functioning, larger organism, like, like a business or a country or whatever, he says, increase similarity, not diversity. To make a human hive, you want to make everyone feel like a family. So don't call attention to racial and ethnic differences. Make them less relevant by ramping up similarity and celebrating the group's shared values and common identity. Now, it seems to me that both the left and the right violated that in the last election. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I think the result of that, you know, Trump definitely played identity politics. We talk about that like it's a left-wing phenomenon, but it, it's certainly not exclusive to the left. Um, and... Hillary, I think, in her part, as opposed to someone like Kasich, who I think was trying to be, despite being a Republican, was more trying to be more of a uniter and focus on shared values. Hillary yeah. decided to play the identity politics card right back, and right. you know it was it was a gamble. And I think you know if you look at what happened in the French election, Macron won by by playing the anti-identity politics card, um, and and I think that was the that was the right choice. I think that was what that probably why he was successful. Um, if Hillary would have done that, perhaps things would have worked differently, maybe. While we're on the topic of polarization, I, I, uh, I mean, we, we, it's funny because, you know, you can dig into the political realities kind of as we're doing or what Clinton did or what Trump does or so on and so forth, whether or not white or uh, labor or whom. And then, um, but what, in my view, like the problem, and I don't have a solution, but the problem is simply polarization. I mean, you can see uh, they've made these charts of just Congress people, not just American people, but the Congress people. They've built, I don't know if you've seen these graphs where they graph out sort of the positions on, a, on an XY axis where, you know, left is more left and right is more right. And, and then they, they show that there's, in 1960 or 1965 or 1970, there was this huge overlap between conservatives and Republicans in Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that when they, when they went to go try to get something accomplished, you know, pass a bill or do some legislation or you know, solve a problem, they could, they could find, they could reach across the aisle and find consensus and pass some legislation. Um, and, and they've brought, I don't know if you've seen these animations and I should, I should look this up and send it to you so you can maybe post it in the notes, but uh, over time uh, this has, is drifted further and further apart. And I have, I have, and such that there's ver- there's virtually no overlap now mm-hmm. between the left and right uh, uh, in Congress, and I think it's reflective of the American people. Um, and I, I, I have strong opinions about exactly how this happened. I mean, it, we are essentially via the internet, via social media, and via cable news networks um, have self-selected our own reality. We watch what we want to watch. Um, and we self-select the things that we uh, enjoy watching, and then conversely, the incentives are aligned both on both on the internet and in cable media. And and by the way, this is an industry that I've worked in, so I, I can assure you that it's case. Um, it it is not um, it's not profitable to give you um, 
minutes worth of, of objective news when um, when your competitor can get 20, a 24-hour news cycle and keep you engaged an average of three or four hours a day watching the news. And that, that would be true whether it's algorithms driving you into Facebook to stay longer, you're doing more ads, or whether you're watching uh, MSNBC, Fox News, or CNN, and, and, and uh, keeping you engaged for three or four hours watching more ads that way. It's all about the incentives. It's all about profit. So um, the the whole the whole idea is to keep you engaged longer. And what tends to keep us engaged is anger and fear. Mm-hmm. And so anger and fear creates moral outrage. And you're like, oh, I can't believe he said that, or I or, I can't believe they're doing that. It, they don't believe in climate change, you know, whatever the thing gets you outraged and you'll click, 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 or watch, watch, watch longer and longer and longer. Well, you know, this is all just really creating the situation where the people essentially have a, a reality that's completely divorced from the reality of your political opponents. You're watching a completely different set of facts, a completely different set of commentary. Um, and they, the, the two barely even touch. Uh, and, and so the people are who, elect the congresses and now are just as divided as the people have made themselves to be unconsciously we've selected our own um you know realities yeah and and, and i think in you know kind of kind of going back to height a little bit i mean um what i sort of see in, in the last election is that you know liberals were concerned about this sort of fairness or, or harm kind of approach particularly when it came to issues of immigration uh, where, where the left has become certainly more progressive on that issue. Um, and they've kind of switched sides with the Republican Party on that. Um, and whereas the right was, I think, very concerned about the sort of loyalty approach where, you know, we are Americans, it's our country, there's a real sense of being an American and that that's different from being something else. Uh, there was a concern about, you know, people taking advantage, about, um, you know, letting people in who might harm the country. Um, yep. And, you know, so... You know, I think that conservatives tend to look cold-hearted because liberals were sort of thinking of morality just on this one axis. It was interesting to me that that for for all the all the all the sometimes liberals talk about conservatives in sometimes very negative ways, but um, conservatives are actually more empathetic to understanding where liberals are coming from than liberals are understanding where conservatives are coming from, according to a number of and, and that, that, yeah, well, that's a that's actually a point that uh, Height made in the book. Mm-hmm. He I think he showed that um, there was a study where they they made conservatives fill out a questionnaire as if they were a liberal. Mm-hmm. In other words, answer answer this the way you think an, a, a liberal would answer this, and then they vice versa. And it turned out that for whatever reason, the liberals were completely unable to fill out the questionnaire the way that a conservative would, and uh, whereas the conservative was much better at guessing what a liberal would have done. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange. It was interesting to me that in this last election, because um, because Height talks about the Authority Subversion Foundation, and he sort of basically says that you know conservatives tend to think in, in this term, and liberals really don't so much. But it seemed to me that in the in the most recent election, there was a sense in which that was reversed. That liberals were sort of looking to Hillary as an experienced seasoned leader, um, that they had trust in um, you know our political institutions and in the media, whereas the conservatives were sort of seeking to you know, almost, you know, storm the Bastille in a way. Um, and, and I thought that was kind of an interesting switch. Yeah, yeah, the, I agree with you. The authority, um, 
access what really sort of um, it's getting complicated when you have people uh, like Steve Bannon who want to you know burn the government to the ground essentially um, I, I think where where it does still hold up is sort of like this overall feeling of patriotism or whatever you know what I mean it's like, uh, singing you know waving the flag and singing the national anthem I think you'll still see a lot more of that in the conservatives than you were you will mm -hmm. with the liberals and uh, and then of course my fear to take it to the worst case scenario, my fear is that they would allow Trump to end up being more of an authoritarian to take the authority access to its worst case, you know, to be, to be more of an authoritarian slash dictator um, before they recognize that he might just be a fascist. So that would be the fear. <laughs> well, perhaps what's happening here is, is, is not really a reversal in the traditional sense, but a, a sense that a lot of Trump supporters had that um, the authority itself had been subverted. Um, that, you know, yeah. the, the left kind of represented these sort of Prince Johns who were sort of taking advantage of, uh, of the people and, and sort of taxing them to death while, you know, the, the, the people who were the, the true and brave leaders were sort of pushed out. Um, yeah. yeah. And so maybe in that sense, it still works along that same axis, but um, I am, um, yeah, but it, 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 there, there, I, was, I think I'd said that there were a number of places where, that I thought were sort of interesting where um, Height's sort of enunciation uh, of, um, of morality found some resonance for me as a Christian in, in the biblical text, um, particularly the fact that he talks about um, self-justification, that, um, you know, we, we are more interested in... Well, actually, he gave one example that was pretty interesting of, um, you know, try, these sort of um, trials that were done to sort of see whether people would uh, take as much advantage of others as they could. And in these, in, these, um, in these tests or whatever, people tended not to go all the way. They only went as far as they could justify it for themselves doing. And so they were still cheating. They were still stealing. But it was done in such a way that they felt, well, this is fair. This is reasonable. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I think that level of self-justification is, is certainly consistent with the way that I think uh, the Bible talks about, uh, you know, humans and, their, and our self-justification. And um, I, I, Romans chapter two comes to mind where um, in Romans chapter one, Paul spends the whole chapter berating Gentile pagans. And then he turns to chapter two and then starts talking about the Jews. And he says, you know, therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. And so there's something there, I think, that, that, that is, you know, very human, that we, we sort of do these things and we try, we try to take advantage, but we're always looking for a way to justify it. Um, I, I, yeah, I agree. And I, but what I also, um, and so that was sort of, I think, the, if I'm not mistaken, the experiment you're referring to is sort of you, it didn't take it to the level where your actions were exposed to the community to the rest of the group mm -hmm. um but what i really found interesting was when you do expose uh when when people do get exposed to the community and they're the community is allowed to judge them and or apply retribution for them well that's the best case scenario like everyone behaves the best mm -hmm. belong to a, a community uh, and their actions are sort of known to the community or, you know, most of their actions are known to the community and the community is allowed to judge them. And one of the, 
one of the really interesting uh, studies that he cited was where they were looking at religious communities um, and the best predictor of behavior within a religious community was not the degree of, of belief, uh, the, the, the degree of piety or, or actual um, internal belief, but rather the amount of, uh, feed, of this feedback loop of where your actions are known publicly and the judgments on you are public. That, yeah, that is interesting. It's interesting to me, too, that Christians in a lot of cases have actually sought that. Uh, if you look at like accountability groups, there's an acknowledgement that if you're able to self-justify, you're probably going to keep doing bad things. <laughs> but if there are people that you yeah. are accountable to, not just to you know come after you, but, but who actually are concerned about you, but that you still have to, in some sense, answer to, um, that that will result in better behavior, but also, um, you know, an increase in those sort of well-being, well-being feelings of community, um, which I, I think agree. are very essential for, for, for what Hyde is talking about. Um, I, I agree. And I also, um, I think Hyde, what did Hyde call that? Uh, ring of Gyges? The uh, yeah. magic ring. Yeah, the ring of Gyges. The magic huh? ring. That you, yeah. It's sort of like the Lord of the Rings where you could put on a ring and be invisible and do whatever you want. Um, I think we all, uh, I, well, I can uh, I speak for myself, but I think we all imagine that if we had those superpowers that we would use them all for good, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I'll confess uh, a fear of my own that I, you know, I don't know that like if I, if I had that superpower for a hundred years, would I be consistently good for a hundred years? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> what, what I, I think that the community really plays a powerful role. Yeah. I remember an episode of This American Life where um, this sort of feature where they were talking about somebody who sort of informally at parties would ask people if you could have one superpower, would you rather be invisible or would you rather be able to fly? And, uh, you know, flight in, in, in a lot of senses should be the more attractive option. But he found that a lot more people than he suspected opted for invisibility. And uh -huh. if they were to give some kind of a rationalization for it, it would be sort of <laughs> uh, begrudging and it would always sort of have to do with being able to spy on people or, or be places you're not supposed to be uh, yeah. that the, the sort of the cloak of invisibility gives you the ability to to do things without judgment um yeah. which, which is pretty interesting um well and I, I mean i would argue that it is interesting i would argue that when you look at and by the way i i completely comply with the um advice don't read the comments like I, I, I strongly believe in that because when you do, um, if for those who don't know what I'm talking about, like if you just go to go to your favorite news set, site, whatever it is, CNN.com or whatever, and then if they allow comments, if you read down through the comments, you'll see the most awful, vile attacks you could possibly imagine. And mm -hmm. I think that's what um, we're seeing. When you see those internet attacks, the people who are essentially anonymous, they're invisible. Right. And so they're wearing the ring of Gyges and you get to see how bad people are in that situation. You, it's right there before our eyes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I, I actually, I was going to mention one more, one more area um, where I sort of found there was a little bit of common ground from a Christian atheistic perspective here, which is this, uh, this idea of purity. Um, and he, 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 talks about another study um, where he sort of came to the conclusion that immorality makes people want to get clean. 
people who are, and he says that people who are asked to recall their own moral transgressions or to copy by hand an account of someone else's moral transgressions find themselves thinking about cleanliness more often and wanting more strongly to cleanse themselves. They're more likely to select hand wipes and other cleaning products when given a choice of consumer <laughs> products to take home with them after the experiment. And, you know, while, you know, in, in Judaism particularly, you have this strong sense of, of uh, all of these sort of things that are, are meant to create a visual of, of purity. There are things you don't touch. There are rituals for cleansing. Um, and, and that all of this is, is meant to, um, you know, I think that there, there's basically, there is a connection with morality and purity or, or, or being cleansed. And, you know, while the, the Christian perspective, the New Testament doesn't um, uh, copy, you know, that exactly, it's a lot less ritualistic. You still have this idea of baptism and all these sort of visuals, visual ideas that are supposed to represent cleansing. Yeah. And, um, you know, those things may seem very strange to a secular liberal because they've sort of attempted to undo those things, even though they're still sort of in the back of their mind somewhere. Yeah, you don't eat animals that roll in the mud, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but he makes a great point. Um, I mean, essentially what he's arguing here is that we all have these modules within our minds. And he makes a great point. Uh, even liberals, um, especially if you're extreme, uh, you can come up with these ideas of purity, like, um, you know, vegans, mm -hmm. or um, you could still find all kinds of scenarios where um a liberal would who doesn't have any who who would poo-poo any kind of religious purity mm -hmm. uh would still point out that you're eating the wrong thing or you're not yeah. recycling your trash or you're doing something wrong that makes you impure sure. you know they want to eat organic food or, or oh, this is the left and right thing but this whole thing about vaccinations yeah yeah and uh, so many arguments against vaccinations are based on these sort of strange notions of purity. Same with, um, you know, eating artificial foods or uh, not eating organic. There's this, uh, this, in this case, I think an unfounded notion that, that something is less pure if you uh, can't pronounce the name of it or if it has, you know, too many ingredients or something. Right, right. Um, but, um, yeah. So um, a place where I... What I think is interesting is that there is a lot of, I think, common ground here, but I also felt that um, Haidt was at times a little reductionistic in that he, well, so first of all, he, he comes to this perspective of sociobiology or evolutionary psychology, which he, you know, he, he takes great pains in the beginning of the book to kind of, kind of uh, reestablish its um, validity mm -hmm. because it's, kind of, it's fallen on hard times, I guess, in the last few decades. And you know, the idea that here is that we can predict human behavior or we can explain human behavior um, by looking at evolutionary causes. And, you know, sometimes that ends up sounding more plausible than it does in other times. Um, I think I might have mentioned to you uh, in, in a text conversation um, an example that I had read a paper of um, um, sociobiologists who are arguing that men preferred women who wore short skirts because they were less likely to trip over their skirts and miscarry. And so it just became sort of ingrained in our DNA that men would like short skirts. Um, so, um, but you know, then there are, there are places of course where it does sound more plausible, but there's still a certain degree of, um, you know, you're, you're, you're guessing a little bit, you're projecting. Um, and you know, that, that can be, you know, can be useful, but it also, it also could, you know, you have to, I think, take it to some degree with a grain of salt. But I think he, Height certainly views um, 
you know, is trying to ground all of these things in, in this sort of evolutionary backdrop. And I think at that point, he becomes somewhat reductionistic because in his mind, um, this is the explanation for these things. And, you know, from a Christian perspective, I mean, of course, if you're a young earth creationist then everything is, you know, is more straightforward, I guess. But, you know, um, you could be a Christian and say, you know, God has directed evolution so that these things have developed for, you know, intended reasons, even if through natural, natural causes. Um, and so, you know, at, at that point, I, I just, I kind of, uh, I think we'd be pushed back a little bit um, because, you know, I, I think there can be, a, um, a more numinous, you know, reality behind some of these things than um, simply just a natural explanation. Right. So, so, um, so we, we would have to part company since I am a naturalist and a materialist. Um, mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, I think the, the, the problem that naturalists and materialists face here is that um it was twofold. I mean, one is sort of battling against many years of, um, uh, of an academic uh, bias towards this idea of a blank slate um, where, and this is one of the things that um, in fact, Steven Pinker wrote a book called the blank slate in which he argued against this, um, this, this idea that we're born as blank slates and that uh, we can all be molded just like clay, like, you know, our parents, uh, you know, raise them up in the way they should go and they will not depart from it, et cetera. Um, and, and that, uh, uh, you, you could, um, you could essentially make someone into anything you wanted them to be. And it was all essentially based on their environment and their culture. Um, but it, it turns out that when you study this, so there's all kinds of ways to study this, you know, twin studies, uh, separated at birth, et cetera. Um, it's absolutely not the case. There's so much, uh, of our personality, uh, as well as our intelligence and lots of other psychological factors that are inherited. Um, and strikingly so astoundingly so, um, and, um, the, the the again the problem that naturalists and materialists face is well how do you um, explain certain behaviors certain uh, brain modules and tendencies moral uh, intuitions etc uh, except by evolution I mean if I don't have a god then all I have is evolution mm-hmm. uh, to explain these things and so to your point about blind conjecture well that's that's part of the thing that you have to trip through if you're if you're calling yourself an evolutionary uh, biologist or psycho you know psychologist because mm-hmm. um, you can't you know go back and witness uh, the last five million years of evolution for humanity or whatever um, so you have to do a lot of conjecture and so there's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of that out there that you can find um, but we don't have anything else in other words yeah. uh, you, you this is what we rely on and so. Um, for, for me, um, I mean, you, you, you would go on a, you would go on a scale of, of easy to hard, right? I mean, um, the, the easy ones are, you know, why do we feel an urge to eat? Well, cause we would have died if we didn't. Um, and, 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 and by the way, um, this whole notion of, uh, survival of the fittest, um, 
you got to, for those who aren't students of evolution or don't read a lot about that, I, I mean, I, I, I won't by any, by any stretch call myself an expert, but I've done quite a lot of reading about it. Um, the whole idea of fitness is strictly about um, surviving uh, to the age of reproduction and then having, and then having offspring who, who survive. Mm -hmm. So that's all that means. It doesn't mean anything else. Um, and so whatever, uh, whatever behaviors we have a tendency toward, whatever intuitions, whether they be moral or otherwise, uh, are there for the reason of helping us to survive and to pass on our, on our genes. Yeah. And so, um, so that would include, um, it, to Heights, uh, I, that would include all of our moral intuitions. And so he even argues that, uh, religion, or you, you could probably broaden that into any sort of moral framework or uh, uh, group ideology or what have you. It was really there for the purpose of sort of unifying uh, you with your tribe. And so that we could all sort of share a set of ideas and values and beliefs that would bring us together because it's really hard in evolutionary time, you know, 200,000 years ago, it's really, really hard to survive by yourself. You really need help. And so anything that binds you together in communities is going to be um, yeah. an advantage. Well, so in, 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 I kind of have a couple, a couple thoughts about that. I think the first is that in that framework, there is a, a really true reality that morality becomes arbitrary. And, and that is, you know, it just happened to help in this circumstance, but there's, there's not really anything else to commend it. Um, but on the, on the other hand, I think because atheists have tended, or, you know, particularly in the last couple hundred years where materialism has, has been king, um, atheists have tended to um, look to uh, evolution for moral exp or for explanations of morality, just as Hyde is doing here. And, you know, there's sort of a, an assumption that morality is, is, is good in some sense. So if it's developed through evolution, then, you know, uh, then maybe, maybe that's not so bad. And so what I think has kind of happened with, um, what happened with sociobiology is that it ran up against an ideological opponent, opponent in, in uh, feminists because it managed to make justifications for why men were rapists, why they were aggressive sexually and those kinds of things. Because with explanation to its usefulness for fitness, um, and you know, so it became an ideological battle, and I think that was essentially why it disappeared. From my reading, I, I'm not I'm not an expert on sociobiology or anything, but um, and, and my reading that seems to have been the case, um, and I think that brings up another issue. And height kind of well, well, sorry, well, no. if, you, if you don't mind. Oh, really, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. There's, there's a lot to unpack already, so don't don't bring up another issue. Yet. Okay. okay. Um, so um, the first thing you said, um, and and we and we sort of we sort of went down this path online, and and I and I'm still struggling when you say that uh, that you know grounding your morality and evolution uh, just makes it um, arbitrary. Uh, I, I still don't see, you know, if your definition of arbitrary means that um, it doesn't have its anchor in something outside of humanity, well, then, yeah, but I'm a humanist, so um, I have no problem grounding my morality inside of humanity. In fact, when you just said um, 
you know, that such and such is good. You, I, I can't remember the phrase you used. You said something is good or something is bad. I mean, your ability to say that something is good, your ability to even, even when you read something in the Bible and you read it and you say, well, that sounds good. You're, you're using your moral intuitions that you were born with to even say that. Um, so, you know, if you can point at my morality or your morality or anyone else's morality and say it's good or bad, you're using the biology you were born with even just to feel that, to feel whether it was good or bad. So I don't understand what the, what the, what the problem with the arbitrariness is because I am a human. So it's cool to me that I use my humanity to decide what's moral. Yeah, so, so then but we, we talked earlier about the example of whether uh, men being rapists contributed to fitness. Um, we, we could point to other things that, are, that, are, that humans do. So we're, you, you talked about how in the last you know, few thousand years we have become less violent. So maybe that's useful right now, but at one point that wasn't as useful. So, um, and even our social nature is grounded on self-interest, ultimately. Um, it's useful because it helps the individual organism. So it seems to me that what we call morality, you know, what, 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 why is one notion considered moral and another notion considered immoral? If they're both part of the human experience. If you are judging yourself in reference to yourself, then what are you doing differently than the person in, in the example that, that Height gives of the study who steals just enough that he can justify it? And I think that's the problem. And I'm not saying that, that atheists do that or are those kinds of people more than any other people. Um, it, it's, it's a logical problem for atheism, I think, not a, not, not a you know, an experiential problem. I don't think that atheists are, are necessarily worse people or anything like that. Right. But I, but, but so, I think that there is, a, there is an issue of grounding that I think is there. Right, right. So, so you're, you're correct in saying that, you know, if I'm, if, and by the way, whether or not I can come up with a moral um, argument for or against rape um, has nothing to do with the reality of where it came from. In other words, if I failed, you know, if I failed to argue, uh, to convince you that, that we should have, um, uh, based on our moral intuitions that we're born with, that we should all be, um, we should all just immediately recognize that rape is wrong. Uh, it wouldn't, it, it, it it wouldn't change the fact that we either do or we don't have the capability within us to, to commit rape. What I'm suggesting is that our, uh, our moral intuitions um, to look at someone who is a murderer or a rapist and say, well, that's wrong. Uh, my suggestion is that we were born with those intuitions and that those intuitions, uh, in fact, the title of Pinker's book. Those are the better angels of our nature. We have different uh, moral intuitions and that can be engaged in different ways and at different times. And the ones that are pro-social, that draw us together in groups um, and that uh, allow us to recognize that these are anomalies, that murder and rape and all these other things are anomalous and they're, they're not commendable as you um, stated in your one of your arguments online that's not commendable uh and and so those those are things we were born with well and and so how do you how like how would you point at something and say that's wrong uh if you didn't if you weren't born with those sort of moral intuitions i, I think height would actually disagree with you there because he himself points out that we do not have a universal love for humanity innately we have a love for 
the unit that we exist in. That's why it's murder if you kill somebody, you know, on the street. But it's you know being a good soldier if if you kill somebody from another country and, and you're, you're right, right. And and so I, don't, I you know I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. I, I mean I I myself a part of the process of um, you know Western civilization in my eye is expanding. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, expanding that expanding that circle of empathy is part of the part of the project of liberal uh, Western civilization. But, but why do why do we call that? a better angel of our nature to expand the circle of empathy. I, I think we're assuming a standard that exists outside of us because it's not in reference to who we are as people. It's not in reference to our biological um, you know, development or evolutionary development. I think we're, we're pulling for something somewhat outside of us. We're trying to move forward in a way that we haven't been, a place we haven't been. And that assumes sure. a notion of progress that's grounded in something outside of the human experience. I think it's grounded in rationality. I mean, I think that all of those of us who are not psychopaths um, <laughs> can, can simply just reflect on, you know, reflect on, on our own human experience and what's in our minds. And, and you, know, you just ask somebody, well, which one is better? And we all know, you know, it's, it's, it's grounded in the fact that. Um, um, but what, can, can, can I ask real quickly, why should we go, apply that to our enemies? Uh so to the extent, so there's a process, um, again, the, the Peter Singer process of trying to understand um, that, you know, the world is uh, actually part of your tribe if you just think of it that way. Um, now, in evolutionary time, that may have been less appropriate. There may, there, I may have had no ability to understand my enemy, and my enemy may have had absolutely no, um, absolutely none of my interest at and and when I and when I say evolutionary time, I mean you know pre-civilization essentially, uh, and that may just be been the way things are or were, um, but that doesn't mean that at this point in time I can't use my rationality to recognize that um, you know in many in many instances uh, just like me, and if I could just recognize that, mm-hmm. um, maybe we could extend uh, extend all an olive branch. It seems to me that if the atheist who argues that is consistent, it's a morality that's essentially mercenary. And I don't think that atheists actually do think that way. But, but, but I think that logically, the morality that you're talking about ends up being a mercenary morality. Because ultimately, we're still, what we're still focused on are those things that have contributed to fitness. We're expanding things a little bit. We're trying to move forward with the way things are developing. Um, but but essentially it's, it's still it's still self-interested and i think and that, no, I, right i, I don't I, yeah I, I probably can't argue against that i mean it's so ultimately it is self-interest i mean i i, I want to live in a world that's peaceful mm-hmm. and i and i want to survive i i want to i want me and my child and wife to survive more than any other person on earth I, i'll mm-hmm. grant you that um mm-hmm. but i also think that there are huge benefits for myself um and and when i think of the planet as a whole. Sure. So, but, but, but what happens to the consistent invisible atheist? What does he do? Consistent? What yeah. Do you mean by consistent? <laughs> well, 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 what happens to the invisible atheist who acknowledges that morality is based in self-interest? Uh, well, first of all, um, uh, it kind of depends on whether he's a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
because I mean, we're all look, we're all built with these modules. That's all we are. We're yeah. just we're just biological organisms that are built with these modules that make us feel bad. When I say, you know, when I see, um, I, I don't know. Have you ever seen one of these anti um, one of these PETA videos that shows uh-huh. all the harm that's been done to animals? I mean, if that yeah. doesn't make you um, if that doesn't make your gut wrench or if you don't if you can't, you know, if you don't watch um, uh, one of these documentaries about the horrors of war or whatever and and if your gut just doesn't just it just doesn't just tear your stomach right out of you and make you feel uh horrible then i would argue that you're a psychopath and um and again you know psychologists have measured this uh there's there's a very very small percentage of people who just have this uh failure within their um uh, biology to recognize that these things are horrible and so as long as you're not one of those people you should um continue to act morally based on your moral intuitions now the ring of gaijis i you know i don't know because like we just we just talked about uh communities help us they help us sort of push ourselves towards the better angels of our nature so so but there's a lot of value laid words there i noticed you talked about horrible and i think even the word psychopath you used i think had a a certain a value attachment to it that you're saying these people are deficient somehow and that suggests a standard but if the standard is constantly moving because evolution is constantly moving um on what basis do we say that the psychopath is deficient well on the basis that um that you know well, first of all, I feel blessed to live in a wor- in a world where psychopaths are not in the majority. Um, mm-hmm. uh, thank goodness that's not the case. Uh, but on the basis that um, of my of my own biology, again, mm-hmm. it, 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 you go back to what you feel. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we're all we we're all born with these same modules, and so we and and then of course your rationality can tell you that. Uh, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Those of us who do feel this way should band together and make a more pro-social society. Mm -hmm. Does that end up being authoritarian, though, if there aren't any um, ultimate values? I mean, so let's say that I have a feeling in me. Let's say that a culture has a feeling in it. Maybe we'll we'll look at a a radical Muslim culture or whatever that uh, says, I am disgusted by homosexual behavior. So I, I want to remove those people from society. I want to punish them. I want to imprison them, whatever the case may be. So th- they're going based on a moral intuition that, that presumably, you know, is, is developed in, in human humanity through evolution. It's, it's fairly common throughout cultures and history. Um, so on what basis do you tell that person he's wrong, but the person who said, the, the society that says, let's lock up the psychopath, uh, w- why is one authoritarian and the other not? There's plenty of societies where that turns out badly, right? You you do band together and you do decide what your moral norms are and they end up being harmful to some set of people or the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not trying to suggest that this is some magical wand that you wave over. Here's the problem, okay? The alternative is you make reference uh, to God. And the problem with that is that um, in every case, you've got people telling you what God's will is in every case, whether it's coming from the Bible or from you or anyone else, it's still just people. People wrote the Bible. You're a representative of one of these religious organizations and it's still just people. 
And so it's, it's fun. I mean, I'm with you in the sense that it's fun to pretend and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, that sounds, I'm sorry. That sounds, that sounds, that sounds demeaning. Like the, the idea, the idea is a, is a compelling one. Yeah. The idea is compelling to suggest and say, well, you know what? there's a way out of this logical conundrum. There's an, there's an external force. There's a, there's an underlying force in the universe that's going to help us with all of this and help us wrangle all this. And, and it's God. And we're, we can all make reference to that. But the problem is no one can agree on what that is. And, and everyone who's telling me what it is, is a human being. Mm-hmm. So, so would you say that it's more difficult to interpret scripture than it is to interpret emotional impulses and make that into a moral framework? Uh, I, you know, honestly, I think they're both, they're both potentially difficult. I mean, we all do the, we all do the moral intuition part naturally. We all do it, whether we think about it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, um, with respect to scripture, uh, God, where do I even start? Uh, that's, yeah, that's the most difficult thing of all. I mean, you could just look yourself and see how many denominations have Sure. Uh, resulted and 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 gone in every different direction. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, I I understand that there. Are, I mean, there there are theonomists and theocrats, and and I'm not one of those. I mean, I I think I believe in a firm distinction between church and state. Um, partly because I I understand the danger um, to religious liberty that it would entail. I mean, I you know if if I you know if I were in Calvin's Geneva, um, you know I would be a heretic. You know, so. Um, I so I what, what, did, what did they do with heretics in Calvin's Geneva? Uh, they did not. Well, sometimes they were killed. I, I know. I know uh, Michael Servetus, for example. Yeah. Um, so now, what I will say is that a a very simple notion that humans are valuable because they're made by God. Now, if we can acknowledge that all these other things may be difficult to discern. Um, that we can have a public dialogue based on reason, experience, and and even you know maybe script, you know, religiously derived notions. I don't think religion should be shut out of the public square um, just because to do so would also exclude uh, atheist moral reasoning as well, because it's somewhat fideistic. So, um, but, you know, I think we all have a, an ability to participate, but if we don't acknowledge that there is genuine human value, then I, I think all of this becomes, you know, so, completely worthless. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree uh, except for one small point, which is I just, I honestly struggle to understand why um, a theist can't see that human val- human life has value just because I am one. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can see that humans have value because I happen to be the proud owner of a human brain who feels all these things. I mean, I mm-hmm. like when we all do, you know, again, except for those of us who are, yeah, there, look, there are people who have been bonked over the head who lack these certain moral intuitions as well. So it's just a, there's a defect in certain people uh, or they were born sociopathic or what have you. But the, the point is, I don't, I don't see why there's an iota less force in the statement that humans have value because they're human mm-hmm. than humans have value because God said so. And, by, and again, Back to the same thing. You know, you can say humans have value because God said so. And what I'm hearing is humans have value because Cody said so. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really, I, to my ear, those are identical statements. Um, they're identical because I'm, I'm, 
because I'm stating it, so I'm stating my opinion. Is that what you're saying? No, they're identical because no matter who tells me, whether it's you oh. or anyone else, no matter who, who tells me that humans have value because God said so, um, the, every, so far, every single person who's told me that was a human being. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I'm not sure if I'm following that exactly. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, the, so, I, so, I mean, in your mind, I think you're differentiating ideas that come from man and ideas that come from God. Uh -huh. and, to, and to me, those are the same because every idea from God that I've ever heard came from a human. It's been filtered through a man. Right. And, yeah. and so how do you know the difference? I mean, people claim to speak for God all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes they say horrific things and sometimes they say great things, mm -hmm. but how do you, how do you, how could you possibly know the difference? Um, and, um, even if there were a God, like, how could you possibly know the difference? I mean, uh, in, in, the, in my own religious tradition in Mormonism, uh, there was a very, there was a prescribed methodology for this. It was called pray about it and, uh, see how you feel. Yeah. And then you're supposed to get this burning in your bosom, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And to me, the psychology presents all the justification I need to say that the burning in your bosom is um, confirmation bias and all kinds of sure. other things going on. Hey, it, it makes me feel good to believe the same things that my parents believe or that they told me because then I'm part of the group and I'm more likely to survive. Yeah. Well, apart from a few more charismatic circles, evangelical uh, Christians are far too rationalistic for that kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, well, so maybe broaden this just a little bit. Um, one point I thought was very interesting is that Haidt asserts their evolutionary background has not been primarily concerned with making us careful thinkers, as rationalists have often asserted. Um, but, but if evolution has not ultimately taught us to reason, why should we believe what our mind is telling us? He says that intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. Um, if you think more reasoning is something we do to figure out the truth, you'll be constantly frustrated by how foolish, biased, and illogical people become when they disagree with you. But if you think about moral reasoning as a skill we humans evolve to further our social agendas, to justify our own actions, and to defend the teams we belong to, then things will make a lot more sense. Now, what he's essentially saying there is that evolution was was not well, attempting. That makes it sound like we're reifying it. It's not a person. But but the, the upshot of what evolution has done is not to make us able to understand the truth or to think carefully about it. It's basically because that that is not that could be a related goal for survival, but it's not the primary goal. It's not the primary thing that survival is going to try to do. And, and he points to the fact that we do self-justify yeah. um, as evidence for that. Now, yeah. I don't see how an atheist can have any confidence, an atheist materialist can have any confidence at all that we can circumvent this programming to uh, know any truth with any real certainty. And I think that, that becomes problematic because, you know, you're, the same brain that misleads you in so many other areas is to, is is uh, led you to be an atheist. So you can't even believe the idea yeah. of evolution of natural materialism, um, you know, with any real confidence. Yeah, and I would argue that the same brain that helped your ancestors survive and has helped you survive has led you to be a, a Christian. But yeah, so sure. Uh, <laughs> sure. and, 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 but, but on atheist assumptions, 
that's very problematic. You know, on a Christian assumption, we could say, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're fallible, maybe we're fallen, whatever, but, but there's still, we're still made in the image of God, and, and that includes rationality. So we can, we can, in some senses, rise above that, not perfectly, but it's an option for us. But, but is that right, the case right. in, in an evolutionary framework? Right. So I love I, I love this discussion, and this is not this is not an easy discussion because here's the thing, I completely agree with every single word that uh, that Height just said there. Okay, uh, and 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 yet by doing so, I'm acknowledging that my failures as a rationalist, and yet rationalism is one of the one of my core beliefs. It's one of the like I think I just got through. Um, saying to you that I won't even engage with someone online if they don't have that element of rationalism, that they're, you know, when you're, if you're talking to someone uh, and they don't keep going back to the well of rationalism or, you know, their next argument is based on logic and, um, and th has been thought through, then I don't even want to engage with you. Um, so, but this isn't, but this is absolutely true. I, I think it's absolutely true that um, uh, if you understand, you know, once you understand evolution, you have to acknowledge that the goal doesn't have anything to do. The goal of a human brain doesn't necessarily have anything to do with finding the truth, except to the extent that knowing the truth might help you survive. And I think that in many cases it does. And that's why we have the small bit of rationalism we've managed to carve out for ourselves. Um, and so um, your, your, your point is well taken. Uh, I, I think, well, it's going to sound elitist. I think that some of us, some of <laughs> us, some of us humans have managed to sort of recognize this fact about ourselves it's sort of, to sort of say, Hey, wait a second, maybe I should question every single one of my beliefs and maybe I should, um, take the time to, uh, carefully examine every single one of my beliefs. Maybe I should especially take the time to examine the ones that I was handed down from my parents. Um, to, because, uh, you know, 90 something percent of people just sort of accept the beliefs that they were handed when they were born. And um, so for me not to do so puts me in a small minority. Uh, but no, it's absolutely true that, um, from an evolutionary standpoint, it could just as well be the case that, uh, uh, and in fact, you, if you look at other animals uh, that don't have um, intellects or rationalism at all, they, they've, you know, they've established other strategies for survival. So rash, rationalism or the ability to find the facts, in fact, that's what's really astounding about humans in general is that we... Um, that we have the capabilities that we do to find what small sliver of uh, facts about the universe that we have. But I mean, I, I, I actually, I actually love this because it explains a lot about when you, when you look at humanity in general and you think, my God, how did they, how do we get this huge group over here with these wacky ideas about, I don't know what pick, take your pick, you know, UFO abduction or whatever. And this huge group over here, are these wacky Mormons or whatever, and this huge <laughs> other group over here, are these, you know, Muslims and whatever they're thinking. And like, like it's just, it's astounding. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at, you know, humanity as a whole, um, and I love the way Hype thinks about this. He's saying, well, well first of all, um, our ideologies and our beliefs, um, uh, the, our ability to have those evolved for a different reason than what you're thinking. The, the, the reason that they are there is to draw us together in groups uh, so that we can survive together. Yeah.
Well, I mean, quickly on the topic of the fact that, you know, we have only, our rationality is only useful insofar that it's, it's useful for fitness. Um, Alvin Plantiga, a philosopher and uh, particularly focuses on epistemology, um, he kind of uses this argument. He basically argues that naturalism and evolution can't coexist for that very reason, um, that, that they're, they're sort of self-defeating when you put them together. Um, and um, and a little quotation from the book that I found funny and relevant was, uh, what about physics, mathematics, philosophy, and evolutionary biology itself? Do they have evolutionary significance? After all, it is only the occasional assistant professor of mathematics or logic that needs to be able to prove Gödel's theorem in order to survive and reproduce. Indeed, given the nerdness factor, undue interest in such things would have been counterproductive in the Pleistocene. Uh, what prehistoric woman would be interested in some guy who prefers thinking about set theory to hunting? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, look, there's no denying uh, that what we're engaging in in the last uh, few hundred years is incredibly anomalous uh, on on the evolutionary scale in terms of it's never happened before. Uh, and um, I think, but, I, but what I think it is, is indicative of, uh, of a niche that we carved out. So when you look at, when you look at organisms on earth, um, they fulfill different niches, they come up with different strategies. And when I say they, I mean, evolution, you know, has evolved for them a strategy, uh, you know, certain, um, certain animals evolve more speed uh, and, and less, uh, uh, ability to hide other animals evolve, uh, strength or ability to climb, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And each one of these, each one of these things are trade-offs because they all require energy. And so you, there's only a finite amount of energy that you can find with food and so on. And so you have to do all these trade-offs. And so we, we wound up, um, in this, in this rationalistic niche and, um, no, we weren't, um, solving, uh, Girdle's theorem, but we were, um, we, we found ourselves in this niche to say, huh, you know, when the buffalo go behind uh, the hill, um, they still exist. And in fact, I've, I've observed that every spring they come to this river and they drink. Uh, and I remember from last spring that they're, that they were there. And so I, I, I propose a hypothesis. They'll be back again this spring. Mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so on and so on. Like this is the niche that we found ourselves in. And I don't want to underestimate, I mean, in spite of the fact that we weren't uh, solving quadratic equations, I don't, want, I don't think we should underestimate the amount of thinking that was going on in our ancestors just to survive. I mean, I think that there's a lot of planning for the winter. There's a lot of uh, uh, the social uh, in terms of we're, we are the most social of, of the primates. And so along with being social, um, when I'm sitting in a room with, uh, uh, I have, a, I belong to a humanist book club. And when I, when I'm sitting in the room and I've got 12 people sitting around the table, um, my mind has a representation, you know, unlike an autistic person, um, my mind has a representation of all 12 of those people plus, and then some maybe like the author of the book and maybe I'm thinking about my wife and whatever, whoever else. So I've got this little representation of each one of these people in my mind. And there's a lot of computation going on because uh, without even hardly thinking about it, I can compute what 
so-and-so might think if I said such and such, like if I, like if I look over at Jane and I say this, what is Michael going to think about that? You know, that's all going on in my mind as a social being. These are very complex computations. You know, these are not simple things. These are not something that monkeys can do. This is not something that uh, a lion can do. This is something that humans do. And it's very, very complex. Absolutely. Well, and since we're talking specifically about morality, I, maybe we should move back to that a little bit. But uh, I, I wanted to hear what you thought about, because you, you talked about uh, Sam Harris in some of our discussions. And uh, I reviewed um, this book, The Moral Landscape, um, uh, on my on my uh, blog. And um, I it seems to me, I mean, I, first of all, I, I, I kind of critiqued his idea that morality simply is minimizing harm that, that you can equate the two and if you disagree with that then you're an idiot or a psychopath basically um and you know i just sort of criticize that as being you know very well, arbitrary let's, well let's at least uh let's try to use the phrase i believe he used which was the well the well-being of conscious creatures or something like yeah that, which is yeah. pretty much the same thing but yeah fair enough fair enough yeah so um you know it seems to me that that's being severely undermined um here by height that, that, you know, it's morality is not simply about the well-being of conscious creatures. And, and, and the, in that sense, what Harris is representing is a kind of cultural snobbery that, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's arbitrary. Second of all, he makes it the only thing, you know, the only way to look at it. And so is, is he, is he just being a snob there? What do you think? Well, so first of all, they're engaged in, they were engaged in two different projects. So Haidt, uh, Haidt was really trying to describe uh, what these human critters are up to. Like he's just really trying to describe us. Like, like what are the moral intuitions and um, behaviors that uh, humans get up to? He was really trying to be descriptive. Uh, whereas um, Harris was uh, attempting to lay uh, a moral foundation for a philosophy that if you wanted to adopt it, you could say, you know, potentially answer, actually answer the question um, that most moral philosophers have attempted to ask, which is what ought I to do? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what Harris was doing. And I'll grant you that he completely just sort of swiped away uh, centuries of moral philosophy um, and really ignored Hume's um, quite right um, uh, observation that you can't get an ought from an is. Mm -hmm. uh, and he just sort of just swiped that away and said, look, let's be pragma pragmatic about this. Um, uh, we're humans and, and those of us who are not psychopaths can easily recognize that when every, every one of us, every single time we're talking about what you ought to do, what we're really talking about on some level is the well-being of conscious creatures. And I think that he made a really good case for the fact that from a pragmatic level, this is what we're all always talking about. Even, even a, a, a religious person who might tell me that I shouldn't eat uh, pork um, uh, or that I, uh, should force my wife to wear a burqa. Um, even all those people are suggesting that at some point, whether it's this life or the afterlife, uh, the well-being of someone is going to be better off based on these moral 
decisions. Um, and I, I, I think he made a really compelling argument for it. And I, re and I realize that he's not a trained philosopher and he just sort of swipes all that aside. But I think for the lay person to, to read this and think through it, um, I, it, it was, it, it, it was a very interesting, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to necessarily, um, say that it was all, um, as you put it, uh, he didn't necessarily think systematically all the way through it, but I did think that he was uh, very compelling in his argument. That, I mean, what else could we possibly be talking about when we're talking about what ought I to do uh, in every in every conceivable case? What what better framework? Imagine yourself as an atheist. Imagine if you were an atheist. What better framework could you come up with than hey? I've got a difficult moral conundrum, whether it's the trolley problem or whatever all these issues are, what better framework could you come up with than to say, well, I should act uh, to better the well-being of conscious creatures? No, and you know, I, I think what Harris is saying, you know, I will say that I think atheists tend to skip some very major steps when it comes to grounding their morality. But as Haidt is saying, we don't actually start from rational starting points in most cases when we're thinking about morality. We're starting with um, assumptions that are innate. No, and, you're, no he's right. You're, we don't start with, with yeah. rational assumptions, but well, you know, people who are laying out moral philosophies do. So. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, what, 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 what I think is that I have yet to hear a um, you know, persuasive, consistent, properly grounded atheistic morality laid out by an ethicist or a philosopher. What I have seen is that atheists and Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus often pretty much agree on, on a lot of topics related to the kind of society we should want to live in. And, and I think that that, you know, certainly we're going to find things in, in, you know, our holy books, if we're religious or whatever, that are going to confirm some of those intuitions. But at the end of the day, whether you call it evolution or the image of God, Imago Dei, whatever, we do tend to come to a similar place. And I think it's important that we, you know, allow discussion in the public square. We allow Christians, Muslims, Jews, and atheists to get together and talk about these things. And, and that we, we seek to create a society that is good for everyone as, as much as possible. Um, and, and I think we can do that without regard to religious texts or carefully grounded philosophical arguments. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah. I think that there's um, where we kind of get tripped up, especially where atheists get tripped up or even religious people get tripped up is pointing at the flaws in people's holy books. Um, and, and, you know, uh, you're, I'm sure you're well, and I'm, I, I, I've heard you discussing the fact that you're studying the Old Testament. There's a lot of horrible stuff in there you know, um, in my opinion. And so that's where we sort of tend to get tripped up is um, uh, assuming that those things should be taken fundamentally or, or literally. Uh, and, and so potentially the, I mean, I think, I think atheists uh, do serve a function for if you have someone who's been reading those things and um, reading them literally and can't quite get their head around how, how to put that all together, mm -hmm. uh, it's good that there's an atheist over here saying, hey, look, there's, an all, there's another way to look at this. But for those who are deeply religious and can't let go of that, then I, I agree with you. We do have to get at the communal table and try to work out our differences and try to be tolerant. But as you're 
well aware there are certain religions, especially Islam, where that's that's a major obstacle. But yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think Islam, yeah, I think Islam has some fundamental problems. But I, I think it's the issue with Islam is particularly with, with violence is actually probably it's unclarity or disclarity, whatever you call it, rather than um, some, you know, fundamental commandment to, to, you know, engage in religious violence. Um, I think it's too, it's too easy to ground moderate or, or, or very conservative fundamentalist uh, readings on, on the Hadith and on the Quran, which so anyway, but it, uh, yeah, there, there's some, there's some major issues there. And I will say part of it has to do with the fact that Islam has a tendency to speak politically. And you see that in the Old Testament as well, because you have a state that's different in the New Testament. And, and I think, you know, certainly there are people who can, um, who are, are, try to understand the Bible and completely misunderstand what's going on because they, they are not able to put all those things together and create a framework. And um, so if you just want to say, well, you know, I'm just going to take this and pick this and I'm going to apply this here without any regard to context. Then, yeah. You're going to have some problems there, which is why I think C.S. Lewis said that, you know, um, you know, the Bible is an adult book. And if, if you, you shouldn't talk about adult books if you don't understand them. Um, but I, um, but yeah, I, I, I think there are obviously going to be certain perspectives that are going to be, have to push, be pushed out a little bit. So for example, if someone is saying, I'm here to tell you that atheists or Jews should not be a part of the society, that's, that's different. Um, but I think we, we can certainly find areas of, of commonality. Um, I think, particularly um, Christians Christians and atheists and Jews. I mean, some Muslims, maybe not, but um, but I think there's also many Muslims that we could find common area with. Um, well, well, let me ask you this question. And I, you know, I, I really appreciate you engaging with me on this because I, I do have trouble understanding some of the morality in the Bible. And mm -hmm. so, for example, you know, when you have um, a verse from uh, the Old Testament where uh, a child that talks back to its parents is, is uh, there people are commanded to go and stone that person in the town square to mm -hmm. death. Um, it, I mean, I, I can understand you put, you know, putting it in a historical context and saying, well, that's, that's what was required at the time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I can understand uh, is a God who considers himself to be loving and moral allowing mm -hmm. this to be written in a book that he knew was going to be passed down to you and your daughter and to everyone else. Like how, you know, how does that work? Help me out with that. Yeah. Well, so I, quickly a point of context would be that um, uh, I don't have it in front of me right now, but my understanding is that we're talking there about an adult child, not a, a young child. The, the, there is a, a cultural context as well that is very much socially oriented, far, far more so than ours is today. Um, I remember coming across uh, this issue, someone who, it's, actually it's a book called um, Reading Scripture, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Um, and this individual was a pastor in a, in a, a very communal oriented society um, somewhere in Asia. I, I don't recall exactly where at the top of my head, but um, in this particular culture, um, there, were, there was a husband and wife who were trying to join this church and the leaders of the church came to this missionary who was involved in planning the church and said, well, they want to join the church, but they've committed a grave sin. And, you know, we understand that God is forgiving, but we're just wondering how we should approach this. And the Western man said, well, what was the grave sin? 
And they said, well, they married without their parents' permission. And he thought that was such a, you know, a bizarre thing. He was like, well, so what? Who cares? And they said, well, didn't you, haven't you read in the scripture where it says to honor your father and mother? Isn't that, a, isn't that one of the core commandments? And so from his Western perspective, that didn't make a lot of sense. From an Eastern perspective, it made plenty of sense. And um, so I will say that when you, there is that sort of recontextualization that has to happen. And, and I wouldn't apply, you know, that same passage the same way for a couple of reasons. Um, one, we're in a different cultural context, but two, because the kingdom of God in the New Testament is different than the physical kingdom of Israel. So this was a society that people could leave, I guess, if they chose to. But as far as being in that society, you were expected to be in the presence of God, to behave a certain level of purity, and the standard was very high. Now, at the end of the day, God is the ultimate judge. Um, God can also, you know, you know, raise from the dead or, or whatever the case may be. So I don't, you know, although I, I, I certainly, I, I think what, what I see in critiques of violence in the Old Testament it's particularly focused on where humans are performing the violence. So I don't hear as much about Sodom and Gomorrah uh, as I do about the conquest of the Canaanites. There's an assumption that God is allowed to do these things maybe, but once you get humans involved, it becomes tricky. And I think partly we're reading in our experience of humans um, using religious authority or power to do terrible things um, basically on their own accord. So I, you know, I think that would be, first of all, a passage that, from a Christian perspective, would not be applied uh, in the same way. Certainly this idea of, um, you know, honoring your, your parents and, and the fact that you have social responsibilities to each other is there and can be applied. But, you know, for, for multiple reasons, I wouldn't see that the same way. But I don't I don't see that as, as problematic and, and in the same way, just because I, I guess I do come from perspective where I'm seeing God is commanding this in a certain context God is the ultimate judge. God has the ability to kill and to raise. Um, so it's not as troubling for me on that level. So you're uh, you're not troubled by Euthyphro's dilemma. It's not a dilemma for you. No, I, I think Euthyphro's dilemma, well, basically, actually, maybe this would be a good point to point out another thing I didn't think I was actually going to get to, which is um, that Haidt talks about how, I'll quote it, he says, if one person has different moral sentiments from another, does she have different moral obligations? And what if people in one culture have different sentiments from people in another? Kant, like Plato, wanted to discover the timeless, changeless form of the good. He believed that morality had to be the same for all rational creatures, regardless of their cultural or individual proclivities. Now, Haidt disagrees with this. He doesn't think that there is one rational, rationalistic morality that we can sort of apply universally. Right. Harris, Harris would have agreed with Kant, not necessarily with Kant's moral philosophy, but with the project. Sure. Now, I think that this is a simplistic um, bifurcation here. So I don't think it's an either or. I, from a Christian perspective, I think we ground morality on two suppositions, which is loving God and loving others. And I think that's going to be applied in different contexts. I think ultimately those commandments to love God and to love others are grounded on the Trinitarian nature of God, that God, th th that reality itself is communal. And, and so this is what grounds morality, that, you know, if God were at odds with himself, that this ultimate ground of reality would actually dissolve. And so there has to be a communal reality to who we are as human beings. There is a, a mutuality that's there. And I think that mutuality is the basis for morality. And that is going to be applied different ways in different contexts. As for Euthyphro, 
Euthyphro is assuming that morality is grounded in the commands of the gods or is just something that exists somewhere there out in space um, as, as, you know, or something like it's an abstract object, but, but it exists, which I think as a materialist, you would say that there, there are no abstract objects that exist. Um, now, I, I think that he's also simplifying. It's not in the command of God, nor is it something that exists out there somewhere, um, but it's grounded in the nature of God, which is, you know, like I said, social, mutual, etc. cetera, um, that's going to, you know, play itself out differently in different cultural contexts, though. But, but you, you know, you, you essentially sided with uh, the idea that if God says it, if God said it, then it's right. And from when you said it's okay for within a certain context, mm -hmm. it happens to have been 2,500 years ago, but what if it were, uh, you know, down the street and I don't know, God founded a new, uh, had a new prophet or whatever tomorrow. Uh -huh. And there, uh, in certain contexts, it was okay to, uh, to stone this person to death because they disobeyed their parents. I mean, do first of all, do you would you deny that that makes your stomach turn? Um, I would say that. I mean, I'm trying to think of how I would have felt about it at one point. I, mean, I, I think at this point, I, I've gone through the gone through the um, you know the the steps of understanding it and contextualizing it. But yeah, I, I think at some point, I guess it would have. I, mean, I, I can. Um, there's a systematic theology issue of would would God command it in some other situation? You know, the kingdom of the New Testament, reading the New Testament aright, I don't think that that's something that's going to happen in the future. But it was okay in one context, yes. And I, I think that God, as the creator and sustainer and owner of life, does have the right to take life whenever he sees fit. I don't think that we are owed eternal existence. Um, so yeah, God, God, God has the freedom to, to take life when he sees fit. Now, do I think that parents should take it upon themselves to kill their children? No. <laughs> um, but I think that God has the right to take life when he sees fit. Does that kind of yeah. make sense? Uh, yeah. I mean, what, what I'm really hearing and, and, you know, we could go, we could probably go on all afternoon and I, I probably gotta, gotta uh -huh. be going, but, um, what I'm really hearing is a really smart guy who has managed to rationalize something that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, look, it, it, um, it, it's, I, I can see how you've contextualized it, but at the same time, if it's right there in front of mm -hmm. you and parents are stoning their child to death for the simple reason that they disobeyed them, uh, your stomach's going to turn. And, and, and I don't, and, and I guess my whole point to this is that I'm making this, um, moral judgment of God based on my own moral intuitions, mm -hmm. which is the only thing we have. And so there's all kinds of things in the Bible that sort of make my stomach turn. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the idea that my morality should, that I should essentially allow it to come from someplace other than my own intuitions is sort of abhorrent. Well, it's, uh, th that's fair. But, but I think that this is a, this is more problematic for your position than mine because would you say that the, the people who originally this commandment came to, it would have made their stomachs turn? I honestly don't know. I mean, I, there are certainly, um, there's certainly a lot of societies where if something becomes the norm, then you just sort of do it. I mean, I, uh, based on, I don't know if I've heard, this is one of those, 
uh, empathy questions, the circle of empathy. I don't know that I've, I, if I could go seek out like the modern day equivalent are these people who do these honor killings for Islam uh -huh. and so on. Uh, if I could go seek out one of those parents and understand what their heartbreak was all about or whatever, yeah, uh, maybe that would help me sort of empathize with their point of view. I don't know. But from an evolutionary perspective, you could acknowledge where this idea that you are, you know, that if, if we let society break down in this way, everyone is going to be destroyed. If, if, parent, if kids stop listening to their parents, um, if, we, if we are not able to enforce cultural norms, I mean, you can acknowledge that there's an evolutionary usefulness here. And I think you would probably, you just talked about honor killing. Certainly, I think we can at least say for the moment, we'll just, you know, maybe we can come back later or some other day or whatever, but certainly this seems to be part of the human experience. There are people who would say, this makes perfect sense to me. So you're arguing it from a Western rationalistic perspective where, you know, this makes sense to you. You have this certain feeling because of your context, but evolutionarily it's difficult to argue with it, particularly in that context. And you don't actually have a solid objective ground by which you can argue with it. It's, it's a feeling you have. This is why Kant and Harris and the rest of them try to find a uh, rational moral philosophy that could be applied in all cultures in all situations. Um, and and I and I, I I believe that that um, project is absolutely doable. Whether or not Kant or Harris has done it, I think that the approach is valid. To, uh, using rationality. Uh, to try to argue for you know the, the well-being of conscious creatures i think is, is is about as good as anything i've ever heard from any religion um and um the you know heights point and your point about cultural context um is is true from the sense that you know people from different cultures are going to think different things when they hear different things and you know i, I might find it horrible that uh, someone is not allowed to be married uh, without their parents' permission, and other people will find it horrible that they are allowed. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what we have uh, in the human species is this huge variability. This is part of, this is one of the tools that we actually have in our evolutionary toolkit, is the ability to malleate, to be, to be malleable about our cultural norms. Um, but, but at the same time, I... I don't see why there can't be an objective moral philosophy that allows us to evaluate the different cultural norms and allows me to say um, with great certainty that, you know, forcing a woman to uh, wear a burqa is a bad thing. Um, and, and so um, that's just where I stand. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Um... I think we, we were talking, Height was sort of talking about that morality is more than harm and fairness. Um, but again, and, he's being descriptive, you know, again, yeah, he's yeah, not, yeah. he's not trying to lay out a moral philosophy here. He's saying that, you know, for many of the people on earth, morality is about more than harm and fairness. So Sure. Now, but he does, he does sort of seem to say that, okay, so, so, so maybe there's two places I could go there. One is he seems to be saying that we should be, that we shouldn't be isolating conservatives and religious people from the dialogue, that we would do better to listen to them that there is something good there, that maybe we shouldn't be a society that says it's okay to have sex with a dead chicken. Um, but are, would you say that we actually should be moving away from these foundations and basing everything on only one foundation? And if you are saying that, 
I would have to ask, what's the basis of you saying that? Because if, if our morality is derived from evolution and our morality includes all these other things, on what basis do we say we should get rid of these but keep these? And are you not appealing to some outside standard? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, you know, I, look, I have bought into this whole um, uh, what, what we, the Enlightenment project, okay, is to essentially say, wait a second, what's actually rational here? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I admit to, to having bought into that um, because rationality is my favorite thing. Um, but I, I, I recognize that we all have different moral intuitions that, and that some of our moral, moral intuitions tell us not to have sex with chickens. And while I'm not going to go around suggesting that people ought to have sex with chickens, uh, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people who has trouble telling you exactly why not. Um, so, um, so no, I think that, um, I think that by elevating the status of reason, uh, mm -hmm. globally, um, that we can all move to, you know, in spite of the fact of whether I may, I may hold some deep seated belief that you shouldn't have sex with chicken. <laughs> Here's the great thing about height. He's got us talking about these ridiculous pic pictures in our mind as if it's like the a really important topic, but it is. So, uh, uh, while I may have a whole, you know, I'm going to hold this deep seated belief that, um, people shouldn't have sex with chickens. Uh, the goal of the Enlightenment that started, you know, hundreds of years ago is to get people to recognize that they <laughs> ought they ought to be able to um, to rationally defend what they're saying. And so even if mm -hmm. I personally hold that belief and I teach my children not to have sex with chickens, I, I as long as you're not hurting anyone, I ought to protect your right to do that sort of thing. And so, yes, I'm, I, I am definitely leaning on one axis. But I think that's yeah. I think that's the axis that reason leads us toward. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I know this is not what you said, but the, the, the one way I could summarize what you, what you'd said, and it seemed like you were going to say it for a moment, um, was that the the pro, the the goal of the Enlightenment was uh, that we'd be able to have sex with dead chickens. <laughs> yeah, not. <laughs> it probably wasn't in anyone's mind at the time. <laughs> It's like the uh, it's, it's like the Catholics talk about the acorn in the tree that you know well not all of this uh, church tradition could be found in the early church but it was there in an acorn yeah um, maybe something like that so um, so I would I would actually like to ask you a question um, yeah. I, I've I've seen some of your writings online that suggest that um, uh, that you and I uh, share a belief that um, a loving God, if if one existed, uh, would not would neither create an eternal torture chamber, but uh, moreover would not allow one to exist. Um, and so, my question, well, first of all, is that do you agree? Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not I'm not entirely sure where you're getting with the allow one to exist thing at the end there, but yeah, certainly I don't think that it is within God's um, God's realm of desire to uh, torture people forever. Agreed. Uh, yeah. well, if one existed uh, that had, well, if one existed that had anything to do with love, yes, much less be omnibenevolent. Um, so uh, my question to you is, um, do you honestly believe that, like, I, I don't know what you were taught as a child, but do you honestly believe that you're, 
your resistance to that uh, to that doctrine, which certainly many many preachers and religions preach. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe that your resistance to that doctrine is actually grounded in your scriptural study uh, and or prayer and whatever else, um, or do you recognize that you had a visceral reaction mm-hmm. to that to that problem and then went and maybe found scriptural evidence for it. That, that is a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, um, so yeah, when I, uh, so I grew up in a, um, well, I only grew up in it, I guess my, my dad's family was Southern Baptist. So when I started going to church, I was going to church with my dad's mother. Um, so that was my, my church background. And there were things that I heard there that bothered me. Things like um, Jews are going to go to hell, that kind of thing. Um, and so I think I would say that early on, um, it was my understanding of the Christian view of hell as it had been presented to me, um, was made it challenging for me to remain a Christian. So I became an atheist fairly young and and part of the reason for that was hell. Now, um, if you go forward a little bit into why I became a Christian, there were a number of issues, um, that sort of came up there. But one of them was hell again, because I uh, had a good friend who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and they are annihilationists or conditionalists um, as, as a rule. Hmm. Now, that gave me somewhat more openness to look back at the, the Bible and say, well, does this seem to make sense? Now, while certainly there are people who come to that position for emotional reasons, and I would like to say that I, that's not me. Um, you know, I could certainly acknowledge that I, I, that could be a, a motivation that I'm not really aware of that that's happening underneath. But I will say this is a position that was held by many in the early church and in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments. And I would also say that the Old Testament, uh, apart from a, a passage in Daniel and maybe a few other suggestions elsewhere, seems to assume that death and is part of the human experience and, and probably extinction as well. So um, I can absolutely justify that position from a biblical standpoint. I can find it in the early church now that people are going to maybe, um, which, I mean, I will say it's also an apologetics concern because I think I've talked to a lot of people who'd say I couldn't be a Christian because of this thing with hell. And so for those people, if I'm, if I'm interested in, in, in getting them to become Christians and I am, I will share my view and where I think it's grounded in scripture. And that might be, a reason that they're willing to give Christianity some consideration. It was a reason why I was willing to give it consideration as well. But I, I actually would say that it is, um, there, there are t- a few, very few uh, passages in scripture which seem to say the other thing, eternal conscious torment, but from a systematic perspective, from beginning to end, I would say scripture supports the annihilationist view. Right. Um, so I actually haven't looked at the, scriptures on this point um but um your initial statements uh your the problematic um feelings when you're going to the southern baptist church with with statements Mm -hmm. such as well all jews are going to hell um you, you know i got i have to ask you why why did those feel problematic if if god said jews are going to hell well then they're going to hell well, I'm not sure that you could have explained that to a nine-year-old, um, but but yeah, so um, at, at the time, I would say, you know, some of those feelings that I had uh, may have been, you know, purely natural, but as, as Hyde talks about, there are kind, there's kind of a, 
a basic operating system that we rewrite over with based on our culture and, and how we're raised. And so I don't know how much of my reaction to it was based on my initial, uh, you know, programming, as Heightwoods call it, and how much of it was based on my cultural programming. But I would certainly say that in our culture, um, a notion of an angry or wrathful or punishing God is difficult for some to swallow. Now, um, I think that God does, you know, punish that, uh, you know, that there's a place for the wrath of God, so to speak. Um, and I don't necessarily think that because that's my personality type. I think that because I think that's scriptural. So I'm perfectly fine with, with saying what scripture has to say, whether people like it or not. And I also would say that the notion that uh, God loved humanity so much that he actually took on human flesh and was crucified, that notion is shameful to historical Islam. Now, that might be very attractive to someone who's Western-minded and believes in this idea of the love of God. It's not very so, attractive so, to someone outside of that culture. So even, now, though, but, even though they recognize that, uh, well, they, I think they call Jesus a prophet or something. Yes. Yeah. And I, they, they, they don't even they don't even want Jesus to die on a cross if he's a prophet. So they, they would argue in. Well, there's different ways to interpret this, but there's a surah that says that uh, they did not crucify him. They thought that they did, but they did not. Ah. And so uh, there's also similar if, if you're I'm sure you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. Yeah. And in Islam, in the, in the, sorry, in the Quran, there is a reference to that, but they don't want to share the details because it's considered shameful. And they don't think that a prophet of God would do that kind of thing. So they, they, they don't want to really discuss it. Um, and huh. so, yeah, so there's all these problems there with, with Islam and, and, and purity. Right. And they don't well, like the I, Song of Solomon and that kind of thing. Uh, um, <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, so yeah. There's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot more I would love to talk with you about, uh, Cody, whether we were on a podcast or not. But we probably... Um, we probably ought to wrap it up, I guess. That sounds great. Well, since you are the guest and, and this was a, a book that you'd suggested. And by the way, I want to say this has been really enjoyable for me. And I appreciate the fact that you have a personality type that uh, you don't feel like I'm coming at you or anything like that. I hope that's not how you felt at all during the, uh, the conversation. No, no, certainly not. Great. Yeah. Great. Uh, but what would you like to say to sort of wrap up what, what you found the usefulness of this, this book was for you? Yeah, yeah probably, you know, uh, other than what's already been said, um, I, I really sort of, um, even though it's a sort of a, uh, the elephant rider analogy. Um, Which we didn't talk about, but he uses a lot throughout the book. I didn't really like that analogy. It's probably why I didn't talk about it. Well, it, it, it is a, it is a somewhat puzzling uh, analogy because when in, in real life, when you think about elephants like in India and they have a rider, the rider is actually in charge. You know, he tells the elephant where to go. Sure. Uh, assuming the elephant's been trained. Uh, <laughs> but um but yeah, so the whole elephant rider analogy that uh, Height used, I, I, I found very interesting and compelling. And then the the whole, uh, and, and frankly, what was we, that analogy really quickly? I'm sorry, what was it, that analogy? Yeah, yeah. So um, essentially, when he talks about the, it's really an analogy for the human mind or the human uh, experience, is that um, our intuitions are the elephant and the, actually the elephant is in charge. The elephant decides where to go. He rides around, he goes where he wants to go. And that those are our moral intuitions. Whereas the rider is not in charge. Uh, the rider serves the elephant, not uh, the other way around. Uh, and um, the, the writer is, is essentially our, our reason and our intellect. And, and when we do, when we engage in this activity of justifying 
our moral intuitions. When we say, well, I did that because, or I think we should do that because, um, he's suggesting that that's the writer, uh, but the, the elephant was going to do whatever it did. Like the mm -hmm. elephant you know, moved away from something or moved towards something, and then the writer's just sitting here going, uh, well, here, the reason you did that, or the reason I did that, he calls himself I, even though he's referring to both the writer and the elephant. He, uh, um, uh, the reason that I did that is because X, Y, and Z. And so I really felt like this was powerful uh, because he, he actually cited tons and tons of research to show how this is true. Um, and uh, it's probably a whole, we, we could actually probably have a whole other podcast to just sort of discuss how and why and whether it's true. But um, uh, it resonated with, you know, I've read a book called The Believing Brain by Michael Shermer that I can recommend. It resonated with um, other things that I've read, um, Stephen Pinker's How the Mind Works. Um, and, and so it just seems as though, uh, oh, and then there's this other phenomenon that I think Height alluded to, but it's been talked about in other books as well, where, it, it, did he talk about the split brain patients? Um, I don't recall that he did actually. Um, yeah. well, well, what, what does he say? Remember you can... but so, so it turns out that when you split uh, the corpus, when you cut the corpus callosum, which is the connective tissue between the two halves of our brain, uh, and this has been done in certain patients, I think, to eliminate seizures. Apparently, it actually mm -hmm. works for for epileptic or for certain people who have seizures. This is one therapy that actually works. Or in other cases, it could be some disease or accident that caused it, but. When you do this, and in in some cases, the two halves of the brain actually wind up uh, as two separate conscious entities who don't communicate with one another. And uh, they've proven this because I guess the left half of the brain controls the right eye and the right half of the brain controls the left eye. And so they can actually communicate with one half of the brain by showing uh cards they can write on cards and show them to one half of the brain and so they've done experiments such as um uh they'll show one half of the brain they'll say uh, a card that says uh get up and go to the coke machine and get a coke and then they'll ask um the other side of the brain why did you get up and the other side of the brain will say well because i was thirsty and this, is, this has been shown over and over and over again that um, our, the, the thing that we call ourselves, the, the thing that I refer to when I say I, um, actually doesn't make the decisions. Our subconscious makes the decision and then I rationalize my decision after the fact. Mm -hmm. And they've studied this in so many different ways, but that's a really long discussion. But anyhow, I thought it, I thought it gelled well with the whole elephant rider analogy. Yeah. And I'm actually familiar with that experiment, but I don't remember reading it in the book. So maybe it was somewhere else I've read it, but the, uh, Sam Harris waking up, he talks about it. Ah, well, maybe Sam Harris then yeah. the analogy that I, I would have maybe used instead of the elephant rider is the sour grapes story where they uh, go to yes. the who wants to try to reach the grapes in the, on the, on the branch and can't reach them. And so it says, oh, well, they must have been sour anyway. Or they're probably sour yeah. anyway. Right, so, right. So there's a one and I think that's better, you know, partly because I think it matches well, but it also, I think, illustrates the deterministic nature of what he's claiming. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so I think there's I think something a little bit more there that we, we rationalize it as if we had a choice in the matter, but we don't. 
Right. And I, and I actually believe that. And so that's, that's in a, that's again, that's a whole other podcast. I don't believe in free will and yet I behave as if I do, but, yeah. but we all, but we all do. <laughs> So. That, that that would be fun as well. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll discuss that at some point. Tim, thank you so much for for doing this with me. It was a, a really a great and I think instructive conversation um, that I hope hope would have uh, sort of gave some examples to people listening, whether they're atheist or Christian, of how these kind of conversations can go and what are some of the concerns we should be thinking about. And you know, I think this is probably a topic you read on a little bit more than I do, but um, you know, my, my my goal is always to have a you know, a certain approach to being able to ask questions and dissect things so that, you know, new information can always be uh, kind of looked at and, and, and thought through. So I hope that hope that, that was useful for, for people listening. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And again, thanks for being uh, those three things, uh, respectful, uh, rational, and uh, what was the third one? Um, yeah, that, thing, that third thing. <laughs> the nice. third one. Yeah.